The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben, bonus episode time. I love bonus episodes. They're the best because uh, they're so easy for us to record the host wraps for. That's true. They are easy and quick. And uh, this one's no different. So uh, on the show today, we have Alexandra Cunningham, who is the executive producer of a little show called Dirty John. Dirty John, based on the most amazing podcast like of its time. Oh, my God. I was so obsessed with Dirty John. I found out about it like two months after it had finished and I sat in my house and binged that whole that whole podcast start to finish in one day well uh season two is coming back now for Wait, the series season two I That's mean right. I don't it, I, okay so the cat's a little out of the bag but John dies at the end of season Ooh, I cannot wait to find out how how, how they continue the story I'm, I'm serious this is, <laughs> I don't know if they're, maybe it's a new story maybe it's a different story. I have no idea I don't, I don't have any insights into it but I do know it starts June 2nd so it's really really soon that's awesome, and everyone should check it out. And here is our interview. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm here with Alexandra Cunningham, the executive producer and showrunner of Bravo's scripted series, Dirty John. Thank you so much for coming on the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So first of all, congratulations on the Dirty John series. Thank you very much. I heard that it was uh, Bravo's most watched scripted series ever. Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. it did. uh, It was pretty, it it was, it grew every week while it was on, which the only other show that did that last year was Killing Eve. So that was pretty good company to be in. Tell me about what it's like to be a showrunner, creator, uh, producer, like wearing all these hats, especially when you're, you know, making a series. I mean, I obviously there are a lot of showrunners out there and they all do it differently. Um, I have found I've been doing it since 2010, I guess, was the first show that that I created and ran. And before that, it was pretty clear to me that being with the below the line people with the crew and, and getting to know all of them, that that is the key to success because a television show, I came from playwriting and playwriting is collaborative and, and a television show is collaborative in the same way or it should be. I think some people fight that idea, uh, but I think collaborating with the crew is is the way to not only have a good time at work, where you spend most of your time, more time than you spend with your family, but from the, the first time you write a script, then you have a concept meeting, which is you know bringing the entire, the entire crew into what you thought you were doing and finding out what they think of it and what they're gonna bring to it and what their ideas are. And that has never made anything worse. It's always made it better. And it just makes a set a nicer place to be when you're collaborating with everyone and everyone feels like they're participating and they have a certain degree of ownership and people actually enjoy coming to work and they do their best. And so that was the way I had worked for showrunners who had not done that, who you saw them on set and you knew they didn't know anyone's names, that they felt like, oh, well, if we're not getting the things we need, we should just pay people more money to work longer hours kind of thing. And uh, I knew I didn't want to be like that. There were a lot of things 
I didn't necessarily know how to be a good showrunner, but I knew how to be a bad one. And I felt that those were a couple of the qualities that I did not want to have. And so, yeah, that didn't really answer your question, I feel like. <laughs> no, uh, right. That I um, should explain what I do. I mean, it, it might help a little. I mean, you don't have to give me a whole lot of background, but because um, I know our time is, is short. But for your series on Dirty John, you have, you know, you're, you're doing, all, like, you're wearing all these different hats. Like, right. what what's that like? Is this the first time that you've done that? Oh, no. In, yeah. No, no. And, um, and how do you kind of juggle all that? How, how, how does that work right. for you? And you wrote some episodes, episodes as well. Yes. Dirty John was sort of an interesting case because I had the actors before I had the script. I've never had that before. Ordinarily, when you set out to do a show, you write the script. Uh, if you're lucky, it gets picked up to pilot. They shoot the pilot. Then, based on everyone looking at the pilot and it fitting into a schedule and to a brand of a network and many other, many other elements, it goes to series, and then you just start making a show. With Dirty John, I had Connie Britton and Eric Bana attached before I wrote the script. I had the podcast, which, you know, a lot of times you may have source material that you've adapted into your scripts. Uh, in that case, we had something that was not only very popular and zeitgeisty, but had just come out. That was a thing that I had never experienced before, that it had aired, I think, you know, early in the fall, and by the time I came on, it was December and then we started shooting in July so that's actually also the fastest that I've ever had a show uh, up and running and then it aired in November which that was also uh, uh, the fastest I've ever had to work in that way which I wouldn't have been able to do without all the various department heads, you know, the the, the DP, uh, the director, the costume designer, and the hair and makeup, and everybody, like, which some people were people that I had worked with before, because this is the cinematography podcast, I will say, that I had worked with our cinematographer before, who is... Um, I've had a lot of amazing cinematographers, but Todd McMullen may be my favorite. Okay. He did my very first show, which was an adaptation of the British series Prime Suspect. Oh, right. He shot yeah. that, so of course you're always going to be fond of your first yeah. director of photography, but he also did uh, Friday Night Lights. He's done just such amazing work. I think he's a genius. He's just a super laid-back Texas guy who's amazing. Getting to get people on board who I'd worked with before made that tight schedule a lot more cheap. I had the actors. I had a writer's room full of writers to help me uh, sort of break the podcast down into episodes. And I still had not written the script because, you know, I sort of had to then go and pitch what I thought the scripted version of the podcast would be in eight episodes. And so we needed to know what that was before I sort of set off to write the script. And so then once you write the script, then, you know, your department heads and your crew can kind of weigh in and go, oh, yeah, okay, this is what we're actually doing. Right. Other than that, I mean, it's it's, uh, it's a lot of phone calls, show running. Um, I don't know how people did it before they had cell phones, frankly, because, you know, the joke always kind of is that most of show running is answering emails on the toilet at 5.30 in the morning. How? I know, right? (laughs) Like, it's just, you know, the Pony Express. Like, how did people, like, when I think about, like, script pages used to be delivered by, you know, young, hungry kids in cars to address. How? How did we do that? And I am old enough to have lived through that, to, 
like here's all the actors' addresses, and then they've got to get these pages before 1 a.m. or whatever, right? Holy moly, man! Like you know, just want to (laughs) pour one out on the curb for all the people that used to make shows possible before email. But yeah, email and texting and cell phones have made my job a lot easier. But of course, when you figure out how to make certain things more efficient, something else always fills the space. Mm -hmm. So it's not like show running super easy now because we have cell phones. It's just logistically better in some ways. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, you you have the, the running of the writer's room which a lot of times, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in the writer's room most of the time. Some showrunners aren't because they can't be, not because they don't care. I have a good number two to run the room for me when I'm not there. You know, I like to be there when we're hiring department heads and having concept meetings, all that kind of stuff. I like to be in those if I can. So that's an, another thing I do. I do writing. I do the polishing of uh, the scripts to make sure that tonally... Uh, everything is consistent, which I think, you know, with serialized shows that go on for years, I think after a while the tone can expand to allow, you know, the, the style of other writers to come in and, and make the world more textured. When you have an eight episode anthology series where each year you're starting fresh, like we're doing the second season of Dirty John, it's a totally different story. The Tonally, the responsibility is a little bit more on me than it might be. I've also worked on shows that went, you know, for years were the same narrative. There's more room for experimentation there. But on this, I have to keep my hand in a little tighter to yeah. polishing the scripts. Yeah, and then and then there's uh, press things yeah. that you have to do. Yes. Yeah, but uh, and then I like to I like to be on set mm-hmm. because uh, coming from theater, I feel like sometimes there are questions that actors have about the material that they want me to answer. I'm not going to say I'm the only person that can answer them, but sometimes they want to hear the answer from me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's important for there always to be a writer on set. And one of the reasons I think that is because the crew is always on set, and I think it's important for them to see that not only do you work while they're working, that you're there to watch them work, that you're there to care about their work, that mm-hmm. you're working alongside them. I think it, it fosters a better environment just in general on the show for there always to be a writer there to show the crew that you know they're not just people that are laboring in darkness and we don't care about them but if it can be uh i like it to be me just because you know i think the whatever the opposite of the fish rots from the head is (laughs) so yeah that's uh that's a lot of talking no, that's fine. Um, so you were saying that the source material, when it came to you, already had people attached and everything. How did you um, how did you get the source material to begin with for um, oh, yeah. Dirty John? Um, actually, the only people it had attached were, uh, I mean, the LA Times doesn't count as an attachment because the articles were in the LA Times, and then mm-hmm. it was actually the LA Times' first podcast. Right. Um, and there were a couple of non-writing executive producers attached, but there weren't any creatives attached. And the my agency at the time, which is no longer my agency, represents um, the LA Times. And the LA Times had started uh, a small studio to make sure that they were sort of there to shepherd material that they were um, giving up the rights to. And so my agency called me and said, have you heard of Dirty John? Which... 
of course I'd heard of Dirty John, come on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said they're interested in turning it into a scripted series. Would you want to do that? And I was like, I was going to go on vacation, but yes. <laughs> and so, and then I actually was speaking to Connie Britton's agent about another client of his. Um, and I had seen a list of actors that the network was very interested in. And, and I knew that Scott represented Connie. And I was like, do you know if Connie listens to podcasts? And then within 24 hours, she was emailing saying, okay, I listened to it. What are we doing? So that was great. And then Eric Banna was somebody that I had always wanted to work with. I had almost offered him another thing that kind of wasn't enough material for him. So I immediately was just like, that's my choice. I don't know what anyone else thinks. But so happily, he was here doing press for something because he lives in Australia. So it would have been pretty complicated to fly to Australia to, uh, to pitch him. But I would have done it. And he signed on. Yeah, and then we started, that was December um, when Connie came on, and then we started the writer's room in February, and then Eric came on, and then we I wrote the script, and then we were shooting in July, and then we were just sort of off to the races. It was crazy. Sounds like it was pretty fairly smooth, though. It was crazy, yeah. but, but it all went, sounds like it went yeah, very... Yeah, I mean, you know, there are other actors on the show, Gene Smart and Juno Temple and uh, Julia, that, that those were all our first choices, mm-hmm. and the, that was where the podcast was an amazing tool, because they either already knew about it, or, you know, they, they could listen to it and see immediately what it was going to be so all of our first choice actors signed on Mm -hmm. when we asked them which that's never happened to me before that was amazing so yeah what were some of the story choices that you made when you were bringing the podcast to something like a podcast to the screen like there's things you maybe had to cut or add or um you know especially since you made it instead of a straight up you know retelling of it in nonfiction, it's it's a fictionalized version right I actually probably didn't change it as much as someone else would because you know it it did have so many fans that I think part of the delight for people in something like this is to see how what they loved is uh, brought to life as opposed to oh I want it to look different be different that I want to see how the thing I liked looks walking around on its feet mm-hmm. So Chris's narrative is so fantastic in the sense that it goes back and forth in time, but it did go back and forth in time in ways that if you're trying to do something scripted, would be difficult for people to follow that you're suddenly bringing in like a a story element or a fact that is going to sound like it's coming out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And then you drop it for a while. Like that he, you know, where television episodes have their own cliffhangers and commercial television to bring people back after we, he had his own sort of ending of podcast episodes that would bring you back. Like the first episode, I remember he said something about, um, you know, that people were telling Deborah to get a gun, but she was never going to get a gun because her sister had been shot to death and blah and then he didn't talk about that again for many other episodes which was super intriguing and I thought about it for a while but then I was like I I don't know that people can handle this much information while they're sort of trying to take in everything else that's going on so I think I'm gonna try to be more linear Mm -hmm. and then kind of intercut the flashbacks that he put in the podcast so brilliantly because I wanted all of that stuff I wanted John's first marriage in Ohio and I wanted you know just to to talk about his family you know back in California and I just wanted to put all that stuff in but I needed to figure out a different architecture Mm -hmm. uh just because I think there's different um 
subconscious expectations from scripted stories that we we need a certain underpinning before we can start throwing things at the audience and so beyond that and some time compression mm-hmm. um because there were long periods in the story that chris could sort of jump over by saying you know so for 10 months deborah yeah. and john were I can't do that <laughs> like or I can just use constant chirons and yeah. say you know uh, so I did do some compression especially because at the time in the story where the long period of time was happening in our narrative it was the time of like greatest stakes that it was happening so I did sort of disingenuously compress the chronological time that they were uh, doing things in and I also focused I think the biggest change I made was I made John's drug addiction, which I I didn't make up. I made it a little more integral to Deborah's decision making to take him back mm-hmm. because I don't think it was as integral to her actual decision making that her her real decision making was more uh, amorphous and yeah, you know and emotional yeah. in in a way that it, if we maybe had unlimited time it certainly wasn't like I didn't think Connie could pull that off emotionally right. but you know it 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 seemed like a good way to convey that someone who's told so many lies who isn't necessarily denying that he told lies that he's uh, he's blaming it on that is uh, maybe more universal than I would like it to be that people could just say oh he's a drug addict that's why he lies that's why he's not responsible that's a thing I can change Um, he says he wants to change it which you know is is a thing that he did say and would have said so I didn't feel like it didn't feel dishonest, but it was a, a, a little bit more of an irising to something specific than the real story. Other than that, we we really didn't change much because mm-hmm. um, you really don't have to because right. the story itself is such yeah. heightened drama that a lot of people would say, you know, that they, they wouldn't believe it if it hadn't really happened, which I wouldn't either. Right. So. so what do you think about the story really resonates with people? You know, I mean, I think... To begin with, true crime resonates with women because I think we listen to it and watch it as almost like a how-to manual to not end up in these situations. That it's, oh, this could happen to anyone and I'm going to learn how not to let it happen to me. So I think true crime has that going for it no matter what the story is. But I also just think, you know, everybody, especially in this era of the internet, I think we're seeing that everybody just wants to be heard. Everybody wants to feel like they matter. And I think that combined with a searching for love, um, that those two things are universal and they always have been and they always will be no matter how pervasive technology becomes in our lives. So the idea that Deborah, as a self-made multimillionaire with, you know, a family and, and everything going for her still kind of had this hole in her life that she could only fill with someone, you know, someone very specific, like a very specific, almost cliched romantic ideal and that the internet was used against her and weaponized all the things that she cared about were weaponized against her by this grifter who's using the internet to find women like her. Um, You know, it's a cautionary tale. So many things that we're watching and listening to now are cautionary tales. But, you know, at the same time, I did think it resonated for both those reasons, that, like, people just want to matter, people want to be loved, and 
there's someone out there <laughs> like for you to, to do those things for you, but also to take advantage of the fact that you want them done. Uh, I, I, I do think both those things resonated with a lot of people like they resonated with me. Podcast networks like uh, Wondery and Gimlet have set up their own podcast TV pipelines. Um, are you looking at more podcasts to adapt into series? And do you see more TV shows complementing their uh, shows with podcasts? Yeah, I mean, I think it's Chernobyl is the thing I've been watching most recently, and I just thought that was a genius idea to have a companion podcast to explain choices that were made and to sort of elaborate on things. I just loved the fact that they planned, they obviously planned to do that. That was not a last minute decision, like, because it's such a well done podcast. But yeah, I mean, I'm not actively looking at one right now, but I have talked to people about others, and I certainly would do another one because it's been a fantastic fantastic experience for me you know the LA Times are still our partners on Dirty John uh, and and you know I hope they do another one because they've been wonderful to work with but yeah I mean it's it's another incredible source of IP and and it has a very immediate effect on the people that uh, that interact with it uh, in a way that maybe novels you know don't necessarily or articles don't necessarily that podcasts just seem so immediate and so you can immediately take away what people are taking away from them and think about how you would script that and yeah I think it's fantastic to have that source of material and I love the people that I've met from the various podcast companies it just seem so on the ball and just excited about this new medium which I am too I had not I will admit I had never listened to a podcast before Dirty John people kept saying to me have you listened to Dirty John I'm like you're dumb it's articles because I had read the articles I was like what do you keep saying this word to me and then obviously I, I I found out I was wrong and I put it in my car and it was fantastic and now I just listen to everything so yeah I, I love it yeah I, I think it's given new life to, to some extent to some newspapers and yeah. magazines too you know when they can do longer form journalism in like a podcast form well, so. and I don't have a Tesla self-driving car so I can't right read articles and books while I'm driving to work and I do not have a short commute but I can devour all of this stuff in massive non-chewing gulps so it's been great for me I feel like I'm learning way more than I was before I had this uh this thing that I can listen to in my car so so thank you technology <laughs> that's all the questions I had thank you on. I Thanks. can't wait to listen to this podcast in my oh, car oh good <laughs> thanks for coming on the cinematography podcast this has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.